AVXL episode 134 was recorded on March 26, 2021. Hey everybody, we've got more 2021 TV reviews, updates on LG's OLED pricing, hint, more affordable, the easy way to add a second subwoofer, superheroes in 4x3, and a giant UVC projector to sterilize movie theaters. Don't forget, email ask at avxl.com if you got a question for us. And thank you to everyone that supports us at patreon.com slash avxl. Your monthly contributions make this show possible. Testing, one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Welcome to AVXL, your guide to the best in home video and audio gear, no matter what your budget is. I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. And we're not going to immediately talk about audio or video. Not earbuds, not OLEDV, the OLEDV, OLEDs, TVs, projectors, projector backlighting, speakers, or earbuds. <laughs> we're going to talk about giant lasers. Lasers? Actually, no. No. <laughs> UV death beams. UV death <laughs> beams. Ultraviolet death beams. Can I call it an ultraviolet death beam? <laughs> A death beam for a particular type of organism, hopefully the COVIDs and related SARS bugs, so to speak. What I found was that yesterday, Christy of Christy Digital, the projector company and LED display manufacturer, and with their projector systems, they make some of the very best in the world for all price points, generally the upper tier and extreme upper tier in terms of the quality of their projectors. One thing I didn't realize until they tweeted out yesterday is that this favorite company of mine is apparently getting into the commercial grade disinfection game with a product called Counteract UV. This is effectively using 222 nanometer ultraviolet light to sterilize public spaces. And they're looking at this specifically for things like arenas and theaters in order to provide near real time disinfection of surfaces. It's hard to tell from their publication so far how many of these devices will be needed. How exactly large are these devices? I'm assuming they're about maybe six inches across with a couple of emitters on them for basically spraying the room, quote unquote, with the ultraviolet sea light at this particular wavelength that is claimed to be potentially safe. Now, if you think about germicidal UV lights that are used in sterilization. Generally, you never want to stare at one of those or use them around basically anything living. It'll cook you in place and fry your eyes. And by keeping this light restricted to this 222 nanometer level, apparently this will not even penetrate the cornea of the eye, let alone cause skin damage. They do use a little bit of legalese in terms of saying potentially safe. What's cool, though, is that I also looked up an article published last summer from the Nature website where they mentioned that the safe range for these far UVC lights in occupied spaces is approximately 207 to 222 nanometers. So I'm very pleased that Christie is focusing on keeping that level at their 222 nanometer level so that it really doesn't affect anybody who may be in the room. And this could turn arenas and major theaters, at least any large spaces, into easily disinfected areas. And I'm really curious about a couple of things. One, what is the potential cost of this product? How long will this emitter last before it needs some kind of servicing? They're already talking about terrific deals with flexible lease options, but they aren't mentioning anything related to what a single unit will be able to cover in terms of its square footage or area of a place it's deployed in, let alone its costs. So while I'm pleased to see that some kind of a germicidal light system could be used in a public space with 
people occupying that space safely, that this could be one of the ways to really get people back into big arenas and group settings like this, either in a theater or wherever, in a way that's just safe for everyone and safer in terms of being able to disinfect a large area. That would be nice. It would. It would. And it was just kind of a surprising thing. Uh, it got me looking up basically what you could do with far UVC light. And I really never realized that there was a range of wavelengths that were potentially safe. And <laughs> I'll put that in quotes and leave it in quotes like that. This is a cool looking product. They look like something you would probably put in a light can overhead pointing downwards. But without any specs to look at right now in terms of how far away is this unit effective or what kind of coverage area, things like that. What are the single unit costs? Who's going to make a knockoff of something like this? But there is a potential, though, to have these germicidal ultraviolet lights that can work with actual people in the room in a safe manner. For in terms of getting these kind of large events with public People. Yeah, people in the room. I remember sharing rooms with people. Exactly. Remember being in rooms with people and not being nervous? Oh. <laughs> That's what I'm hoping. If nothing else, it was a it was a cool shout out to at least them thinking about it and apparently having a commercial product now. Or at least coming soon to a theater or arena near you. <laughs> I like this thought. Yeah. We have a tweet from a listener who was talking about subwoofer setups and AVRs, which said that uh, Den and AVRs don't go below 40 hertz, or the cutoff for full-size speakers is like 40 hertz. And I, I have verified myself on my, my 3700H that it goes well below 40 hertz, uh, uh, or at least it goes as far down as my speaker can go with the uh, test tones I had available, uh, my uh, my golden ears. And it was interesting, though, because uh, in the process of being like, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. I don't think REL speakers is right about that. But we'll discuss that in the future, because there's a whole thing about setting up uh, Odyssey and, and various other things for home theaters. And it's a deep deep, annoying conversation uh, and fun conversation. One worth talking about. Yes. And, and we, I assure you, we will talk about that. Excellent. Uh, but I was, I was laughing because I ended up, one of the links I clicked on before I went, wait a minute, I have a den in AVR and I have test tones. Why don't I just go run the test tones through the AVR? Because I'm slow that way. I ended up on uh, on Reddit on the budget audio file and on audio file. And one of the things I stumbled across, because you know how Reddit is, you, you go to look at a conversation and suddenly it's four hours later and your children are asking for breakfast. But uh, somebody was saying about the TRN-15BA, which is a recently announced in-ear monitor, uh, in-earbud, if you will, with 15 balanced armatures, uh, drivers per earbud. Seriously. I think at this point for me, this is peak this is peak unhinged. Uh, how many drivers can we stuff in an earbud? And I, I'm going to say something right now. I've heard some incredibly expensive earbuds from a lot of different manufacturers with a lot of drivers. And at some point, you go from a law of diminishing returns to a law of this is just bad oh. as you start stuffing more drivers per earbud. Uh, $245 for the pair. 30 balanced armatures for each pair. Uh, I'm curious because I am curious by nature. Um, I have curiosity issues, as my mother once said. Uh, I got to say, I'm actually much more excited to demo the not-so-new uh, One More Comfo Buds and the new uh, Comfo Buds Pro. Those sell for $1,500. bucks. and Cambridge updated uh, their in-ear offerings with the Melomania One Plus. I'm a huge fan of the original Melomania. It actually uh, became... 
a constant companion uh, in no small part because there's like nine hours of battery life per charge in the earbud and the case for them fits in my pocket uh, for I can talk like I'm an Instagram or EDC uh, everyday carry um, alongside of my uh, sorry I'm not going to make those jokes but uh, but it actually it was is it was the ease of keeping them on my person uh, and the audio excellence. Oh, yes, they also sound great. Uh, that got me kind of falling in love with the Cambridge Melomania. So I'm very, very curious to hear the Cambridge Melomania One Plus. I also mentioned Shure's Aeonic 50s last week. And I just want to say that I listened to them some more. And th- it was just as annoying, uh, in fact, even more annoying uh, this time around. Uh, but uh, again, we'll talk about that next week. Uh, LG G1 versus Sony A90J. You've got some more deets coming out from 2021 TV reviews. Yes, the reviews popped up this week and both seem to be very highly desirable home theater televisions, without a doubt. These are the flagship models from LG and from Sony, respectively. Sony seems to be winning the calibrated brightness battles, but these claims of 1300 nits for the Sony or well over a thousand nits for the G1 really don't seem to be there unless you're going into something crazy like a non-calibrated vivid mode or a non-calibrated standard mode. So while these TVs technically can be capable of greater than a thousand nit light output, once you calibrate things and get them dialed in just right for what you would want to be looking at, it's generally going to be still under a thousand nits, but Sony seems to have the edge though with that aluminum heat spreader on the back of their TVs, being able to drive their TVs brighter, in effect, providing more picture punch for the color and the detail on the screen. Uh, Mr. Caleb Dennison over at Digital Trends highlighted the A90J's impressive sounding speaker setup. He went so far as to call it the best sounding TV he's ever listened to, and this incorporates their acoustic Surface Audio Plus, plus a built-in rear-ported subsystem. So they're using dual actuators on the screen surface to vibrate the screen for your, your mids and highs coming right out of the picture, literally, plus dual subwoofers integrated into the rear chassis. The TV can also be configured to act as a center channel if you would prefer to use it as such with an AVR. And it got me to thinking about what the best TV I've ever heard is And I have to go all the way back to, and I'll look up the model number for this if I can find it still on HP's website. But a long time ago in a galaxy far away, they had a DLP rear projection television that had a beautiful design. It was all matte black and it was just an attractive looking box, but it had like a crazy, I want to say a 4.1 or at least a solid 2.1 speaker setup built into it with a significant subwoofer that I still think about to this very day. Mr. Dennison also just posted an G1 versus A90J comparison video earlier today, and I'll be checking that out soon. What I am really waiting for, though, is somebody with the equipment to really take some decent color measurements of these TVs to see if, in fact, the G1 and the A90J are both using LG's new Evo panel or not, or if the G1 definitely is, but it hasn't been confirmed if Sony's flagship Master Series panel is also using LG's latest and greatest OLED panel tech and the Evo panel specifically being enhanced color emitters. This could be also related to a change in the color filtering used, but the goal being to provide hopefully a more robust picture quality uh, in terms of its longevity, in addition to being better at peak color saturation, say like 100% red and green in the DCI color space, which is used for our 4K videos and anything you buy on, say, in 4K Blu-ray. 
Interesting. And while we're talking LG OLEDs, the company was kind enough to send out an email detailing not only the release dates of all of their, well, at least the A1, the C1, and the G1 series panels, in addition to the pricing. It's kind of cool. I think a lot of people are going to be interested in the 48-inch A1 OLED, and Mr. David Katzmeyer over at CNET mentioned that with its $12.99 list price for the 48-inch screen, that's going to be the least expensive OLED announced and released by LG when it arrives. Now, if you're wondering what the difference between the A1 and something like the C1 LG OLED is, well... The A1 saves money by basically eliminating HDMI 2.1, which eliminates variable refresh rate or 4K 120 input. The panel itself is also rated for a 60 hertz refresh rate compared to the standard 120 hertz refresh rate of any of the C models in recent years and above that. And instead of having four HDMI ports like the C1 typically has, the a1 is going to have only three, and they're also eliminating eARC as well. So they're taking out some significant features there that you may or may not care about. I think it's more if you're a gamer and you really want some of the highest performing panels out there today, you may want to save up for the C1 instead of the A1. And in that 48-inch size, it's a price difference between $1,299 versus $1,499, an extra $200 going from the A1 to the C1 at the 48-inch size. The other interesting thing that popped out to me on that list, too, was seeing their 77-inch A1 panel. This is that 60-hertz panel again, but at a $3,199 list price coming out this June is the lowest I've ever seen a 77-inch OLED priced at. Granted, I would probably be more interested in the roughly $600 more C1 77-inch OLED just for pure performance and features built into it. But still, seeing that $3,199 or $3,200 for a 77-inch OLED, I right. could very well see that price dipping quite nicely by the holiday shopping season this year. Probably into maybe the mid-2000s, a $2,500 on-sale 77-inch OLED. Folks who went with the 65-inch and wish they went larger, this might finally allow them to get up there and get the size they want. And in terms of general availability for all of the series panels, they start releasing this month and all the way through June in terms of whatever specific panel you're looking at. It looks to be that the A-series panels are going to be released a little later in terms of April and June for, in particular, they're mentioning the 48-inch and 77-inch versions of the A1 the C1 and the G1, March, April availability for everything. So they're coming. They're out there. <laughs> I've already seen the C1 at 65 inches available on Amazon. That currently is listing for $24.99 as a launch price for a 65-inch OLED. That's pretty damn good. So I would say generally you're getting better pricing and more options in terms of that pricing too, being able to drop down to the A1 if you really just want screen size affordably with OLED technology versus something like the C1, right. which is more fully loaded, and then going all the way up to the gallery series, which gets you the very latest in that OLED Evo tech. Interesting. Yeah. I like affordable OLEDs. I like that OLEDs are getting more affordable, uh, to say the least. It took a couple sittings because it's so long and because, you know, homeschooling and various sundry other things. But I finally got to see uh, Justice League Snyder Cut on HBO Max. I'm going to first say, in case you haven't heard, it's four hours long. Wow. And it's in four by three. What? I did not expect that. <laughs> it 
long story. Uh, I agree. Uh, I, I, I'm going to paraphrase the ever delightful Anthony Carboni, who said, you know, I'm, I don't know where, I think it was maybe three hours. I was like 10 minutes into it and he was like three hours into it. And, uh, I had to stop and, uh, answer some email and, and Twitter popped up and he was like, I'm three hours into the justice league and it's definitely better than the Whedon version. I'm paraphrasing. And then there was a series of comments on Anthony's tweet, and he's he's like, I didn't say it was a good movie, um, you know, just so that it's better than than the original or the you know the the original Justice League that came out uh, back in 2017. All I'm going to say is it's incredibly long, and it's all about fan service, and it's fascinating. You may be a fan or not a fan of uh, Zack Snyder, but some of the imagery he creates is fascinating to watch. It's an interesting movie. Uh, It is four hours long. Did I mention it's four hours long? The other thing that made me uh, laugh my ass off quite literally is uh, the news that they've released a black and white version of it, which is also four by three, but is literally a black and white version of the same movie. So I, I I just wondering like how much I will watch it just because I want to see this, this experience in four by three. There's been a lot of writing about this one. You know, it's not going to be His Girl Friday or uh, or Citizen Kane, but I think it's going to be really surreal to see it in 4x3 and black and white. There should almost be a cinema law that makes it so that any movie over three hours features a distinct intermission in the middle. <laughs> yeah, there are... Just bake one in. Let's all go to the lobby to... or whatever they want to do, but... I don't, no spoilers, but I will say that there are some very native, obvious, easy to find, more than one opportunity to hit pause without worrying so you can run to the bathroom or whatever it is. Uh, unless you have the singular belief that all movies, unless they actually have a 25-minute, you know, 10-minute uh, intermission a la the 1960s uh, <laughs> Cinemascope features. Um, a passage must to be India. In, in one <laughs> ass-numbing four-hour, yeah, uh, ass-numbing four-hour uh, oh. sitting session. I, I you, One of my favorite essays about this, I, and I apologize, I don't have the name of the, the essay or the writer, but uh, I will try to find that. But they pointed out that, that these two versions of this film, the Whedon version and the Snyder version, are just going to be a really interesting smorgasbord for film studies students to talk about auteur theory with. I feel like I was watching this movie for two hours before I recognized any footage from the Whedon version of the Justice League. So I'm just going to say it's a very different movie. Just going to leave it at that. Were both so. movies released? Is there like a way to watch either one or was one basically? Yes. Okay. So this yeah, is effectively so for, the for same movie who... redone by two different directors. Well, okay. With so for, vi- for those different visions. For those of you like Robert who who aren't deeply invested in superhero movies no. uh, or hobbits, um, no. it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, I could say I have children, but the reality is, is I love this crap. Um, so Snyder, uh, Snyder was creating this epic movie. Uh, it was kind of, the, I want to I call it the third in his kind of Superman trilogy. Essentially, it is, is the beginnings of the Justice League. Cool. So instead of having three or four films, it was going to be one massive film. It was going to introduce all of these characters and introduce opportunities for spinoffs for the characters in the next movie and blah, blah, blah. Several things happened. Is, is uh, Warner Brothers was like, are you four hours? Are you high? Are you, no, four hours? No, 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 no. We're looking for like a two hour snappy thing. 
you know, you know, does Batman have to be dark? We know, you know, yeah, yeah, we've heard about the Frank Miller comic books, but really, can we have a, um, so the, you know, Snyder's fighting with Warner Brothers, and he's got this massive movie, and his, uh, his wife is producing the film, and their daughter commits suicide. Oh. And he was just like, I'm out. And so... They hired, uh, they hired Joss Whedon, uh, literally, uh, in the hired gun sense. Joss Whedon came in and basically did exactly what Warner Brothers wanted. So the end result was this two-hour movie. You know, when you look at Rotten Tomatoes, uh, and nothing says podcasting like looking something up on Rotten Tomatoes live while recording. But if you look at Rotten Tomatoes and you go to Justice League, and there we go. Um, there it is Justice League 2017 Ben Affleck Henry Cavill Gal Gadot etc etc oh that that's it's at 40% I thought it was considerably lower than that I think it was like at 22% but it was not a particularly well received movie better by the audience but it was I remember watching it and thinking like I'm sure there's a plot in here somewhere I just can't figure out what it is the 2021 version is at like 73% on the tomato meter I don't think anybody's saying they, they wouldn't mind a little editing and tweaking on this because Snyder pretty much got to do everything he wanted including shooting additional footage for an additional chunk on this I'll give you a hint it comes at the end it's been a really interesting saga. So it was this 2017 version, and the fans were upset, and Snyder was upset, and the internet was upset, and eventually uh, the money the money was ponied up so so that Snyder could actually kind of fulfill his vision. Okay, and it's a big sprawling vision to say the least. Four hours and four by three. That's all I'm taking away from this. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's fast. It's it's interesting to watch a movie with this much action that is essentially using the you know center third of of a 16 by 10 projection screen in other content news uh you were talking about the new home of this old house <laughs> gear grinding segue <laughs> roku man they are on a roll not only did they acquire the nielsen rating group so they're folding that in for basically keeping track of what you do with your Roku <laughs> collectively. But they also picked up right. this old house, including, I believe, the 1500 plus episode entire back catalog. And they'll be offering that free on the Roku TV channel that's available on everyone's Roku. So if you're into house repair or some DIY or you just love those characters, they have a home. <laughs> This old house has a 1500 episodes across 40 years. Pretty impressive. Yeah. It sounds like a good move having that content in house. It sounds like a probably something that was worth the money paid for it in, in terms of getting eyeballs to come visit and watch some of that content. We'll see. One other thing I am super happy about is that one of my color meters that I use for calibration the Klein Instruments K10A. I had to send it back to the manufacturer for a checkup, some verification, and a fresh NIST traceable certificate. And I am currently furiously checking the tracking information to see when I actually get that back in hand. As I am looking forward to it, putting it to use, not only on some of the gear I have here in the lab, but also just uh, testing out some of these new 2021 model televisions and seeing how they perform and how good they can perform. That is arguably my main meter, the Klein K10A. That's the one I use the mm -hmm. most in terms of its raw speed, its ability also to measure very dark patches relatively quickly compared to 
say like an affordable, like two or $300 meter, which slows down significantly when you start measuring the darker patches of color and light. It can take, you know, 20, 30 seconds per measurement, sometimes even longer. Whereas this meter can literally go more than once a second, even into the darkest spots with accuracy and, and effectiveness. And I'm just very pleased to have it with a new, a new certificate back in hand, fully checked up, good for another year or two. It's made to be used 24-7. It's a, it's a commercial style device. It's been out of my hands for about a month now, and I am just itching, itching to get my prize tool back in hand. I think I'm going to fire it right calibrations up. Yeah. Without the calibrating tools. <laughs> I need to test out some stuff on these latest OLEDs, and that's the meter I want to use it with, or period. It's just for the speed alone. I can get something done in literally a third of the time compared to using more traditional affordable meters that are out there. There you have it. Yeah. Tier emailed askanavxl.com looking for an upgrade for a TV with some history with Robert and I. He says, Robert and Patrick, uh, years ago, 2007, watching DLTV, there was a giveaway of a 42-inch Vizio HDTV that was used on the set. I won, and wouldn't you know it, I am still watching this TV. You may have the best like return on investment ever for a TV. That's I incredible. Say, I remember boxing that thing up after we had gone I through was... the trouble of effectively picking a winner at random, which it was very important to the legal team for whatever reason. It has to be legit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's cool. It's still cruising, and that's awesome. He says it has survived power outages, surges, steam, don't ask, and a move to a new home. Every time I think I'm going to replace it, it just keeps working. The screen is only 720p, but it's good enough to watch over the air in Roku. So my question today is what cheap TV would you recommend in 2021? 55 to 65 inches. Thank you for the years of AV excellence. Tier. Oh, my goodness. Um, one, there's so many good options. Two, it's going to be mind-blowing. Uh, not yes. just going from, from 42 inches to 65 inches, which is going to be huge, or, or even 55 inches, but going from 720p at 1080p, assuming you're fairly close to the TV. But the color and the light you're getting off the TV. 720p to 4K. <laughs> yeah 720p to 4k a brighter 4k a vastly better color gamut uh, and a significantly a significant increase in screen size and brightness too and honestly i would direct you right toward the six series from tcl first if that is within the budget at 55 or 65 inches that is going to give you a terrific bang for the buck in terms of having the Roku platform built into it, but also thousand nits of light output, quantum dot color, 4K resolution, supports all of the popular video formats out there, including HDR10, Dolby Vision, mm -hmm. and generally a, a pretty solid investment for the money. I want to say the 55 inch is still in that $600 range, $650 range, and the 65 typically is it closer to $1,000 generally those TVs go on sale pretty regularly. Now, keep in mind too that the the quote-unquote 2021 6 Series 4K televisions from TCL are actually carryovers from the 2020 model year. They were originally launched back in August of 2020, and I believe we talked about that in the last episode. But that for the bang for the buck, if that pricing for a 55 or a 65-inch panel does it for you, that's where I would first start. 
if that turns out to be too much for the budget, I would maybe consider their five series just to save a little money. But at that point, I would have to look around to see where else I would go. It's really hard for me to drift away from something that does so much right, like the TCL six series for their 2020, 2021 model in that 55 to 65 inch screen size. I believe they also have it in 75. I have to check on that, but for the money, it's really tough to beat, especially if you can get it on sale, which, like I said, they frequently do. I would have a hard time pointing at something else going, yeah, that's going to be a better deal for less money than that. All right. Pete has some ideas for buy who's having subwoofer issues with his AVR. We talked about that last week. He mailed ask at avxl.com, listening to episode 133 and the problem the guy has with the Yamaha receiver. Pete says, I had a similar issue with my denim receiver and a BMW DB1 sub, and I found out I had set the sub to only LFE and not everything under 80 hertz. Could sound like the same issue. Had nice bass in movies and we're cranking the volume, but normally it never turned on. Ooh. Best regards, Pete. And uh, Bai is uh, investigating his options and uh, worth mentioning. That's a good call, though. For a long time, I had no clue that LFE was really different from low frequency in general and just getting my head wrapped around that. And suddenly I want to go read a few more articles before I say another word. <laughs> uh, it could simply be a setting within the setup and true. It, it is good to check it all. And thanks to Pete for throwing down that potential saving tip right there. It's so annoying when you can't find something. The other thing I was laughing is I was talking to a friend of mine. He's like, well, you know, and and I don't I don't want to say any, I don't know anything about the subwoofer in question, but he once pointed out that his subwoofer was set for like 40 hertz, but didn't actually deliver much audio until he turned it all the way up. Because some subwoofers do not uh, do sub bass as well as you would think they would, given that they are sold as subwoofers. Got a, another email from Bill, or no, this is a different Bill. Bill, Bill writes, he says, recently I sold my Infinity Sterling 2005 speakers and upgraded the Elac to View 2.0. Holy crap, exclamation point. So great, triple exclamation point. Well, these Elac speakers do not suck. Andrew ain't playing around. I agree with you, Bill. Uh, I definitely agree with you. He said, I did keep my Sterling 10-inch sub, and I'm thinking maybe the debut 12-inch sub would be a great addition. So can I run both my old Infinity 10-inch sub and the Elac 12-inch sub from my NAD 748 with a splitter of some kind? Or do I need a whole AVR? To answer a question you didn't ask, uh, ELAC does uh, an, an OK sub, and they have a really, really slick tool that allows you to use an iPhone to uh, have the sub, um, to basically adjust the sub for your room and its location in your room. That said, I would probably be looking at uh, pre-ordering a... RSL Speedwoofer or something from Shu when they're back in stock, their entry-level sub. If you can afford it, Monoprice's Monolith lineup, uh, Shu, SVS, uh, RSL Speedwoofer, I think those probably will give you more bass. You can definitely use multiple subwoofers. Whether or not the sum of the, the Sterling Tenant sub and the additional sub will give you that big of a difference depends a lot on your experiments with room location and the quality of the subs. It's always easier to use two of the same sub, but I don't see any reason. Uh, most people, when they test this, they use identical subs. And usually it's either in the four corners of the room or the center of the four sides of the room. And uh, uh, in any case, yes, you can use multiple subwoofers. Uh, most people just use a Y splitter. If they if they have a single LFE output on their AVR, they use a Y splitter. You can buy them off of, you know, eBay. eBay, what am I saying? Amazon or, or if you have a local audio store, you can pick one up. Um, you can definitely use them. 
you know, the Elac's okay. I don't know if it's the one I would buy, but they do a pretty good job. And I do think their interface for tweaking uh, the subwoofer settings is pretty slick, their automated program for that. That's one scenario where I would really appreciate having a sound pressure level meter just yeah. to, at least if you're using, especially different sized subs, even different brands in yeah. this case, uh, if you go this route, it would be nice to at least verify that you're getting effectively the same level out of each one before you start any kind of calibration right. or thing like that. But two is always better than one. <laughs> I'm telling you, I, I suddenly desire a room to experiment in uh, with multiple subs. Yeah. I'm starting to play around with it in here, but it's an interesting process. I'll just leave it at that. Exactly. Oh, my goodness. We're talking about uh, a really great Audioholics video they did on fancy cables where they did some fairly serious uh, testing of uh, some basic 14-gauge cables and some fancier Belden wire. And Belden, by the way, is apparently headquartered in St. Louis, I just realized that. And Kimber's 8TC, which is some very spendy and very pretty cable. Was it Gene doing that video? Gene Della Sala. What a great piece of video. They have a related article as well on the website that goes over more detail about the presentation. But in this video he posted the other day, what surprised me the most was that there were measurable differences between something like an engineered Kimber cable versus your standard quote unquote right. zip cord from Monoprice or whoever. There were actual measurable improvements to certain specific characteristics of that wire. Uh, measurable improvements with some of the most sophisticated testing hardware on the planet. Will you hear the difference in real life? The answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> Once you connect the speakers and provide a load, a source, all of that, the differences then drop to negligible. However, yeah, it's like, man, if you're rolling some premium speakers and you want that wire to look good in addition to performing you know, money, no object kind of spending. I was just surprised that there even was a measurable difference for what something like a Kimber cable could do. Granted, in the end, once it's connected, and I'll, re I'll say this every time somebody asks me this, it's like, yes, uh, in specific electrical tests, you can make a wire better in terms of its spec numbers. But when it's actually connected into the system, then it all kind of becomes moot at that point. And any decent... In that case, they were using 10 gauge uh, and 14 right. gauge comparisons. Uh, so we've often recommended 12 gauge, and that really is a good sweet spot for size versus cost versus distances you may need to run. And he also brings up several other good points too, like especially for your front two channels, you really uh, ideally want to be using similar lengths and have similar characteristics right. in those wires. It's not good to mix and match different brands, definitely. Yeah. Do you need to go for the Kimber, even even if it is demonstrably, measurably better? <laughs> not necessarily. Not not unless it's just like I demand this. It becomes vastly better when you you know when you start looking at the numbers. Though a lot of the places where it's vastly there's huge measurable difference. He went from like a normal forty dB scale to like a two dB scale to show that vastly measurable distance. At a normal forty dB scale, it wouldn't actually show up because it would still look like a straight line, a right? Blip. A lot of the a lot of the results you're you're looking at well over twenty thousand towards a hundred thousand hertz. Not a place most of us. Uh, well, no. <laughs> It's not a place any of us can hear. Don't tell me harmonics because I'll point and laugh. Um, but, you know, 
I, I liked one of the things he said, uh, Mr. De La Sala said in the video, quote, room acoustics, positional EQ of speakers, i.e. if you move it closer to the wall, there's more bass, move it farther away from the wall, there's less bass. Just moving your head a few inches will change your speakers far more than any cable you're going to use. Exactly. So if you're into objective measurement tools, this is a good one. The other thing he pointed out is, you know, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot. You know, we've talked a bunch about people's bias confirmation and other stuff. One of the things somebody was talking about recently uh, is how at certain levels, you know, the or at certain events, and, and Rob and I have both been through this uh, side by side at, at CES and other places where there's a big setup, you know, where it's like, when we segue to our product, you'll notice a vastly increased blah de blah de blah and, uh, you know, you know, more chocolatey midtones, I think, was the thing uh, Mr. De La Sala said in the video <laughs> that made me laugh because, you know what I mean? Like, you know, vinegar essences of, of you know, weasel guts in the midrange. Or referring to those expensive premium cables as literal jewelry for your setup. Yes. Well, yeah, the, the, I'm okay. Look, you, you want to buy a fancy cable because it's pretty and you want to have, you know, some sort of Japanese manufactured like $50 a pop little X stand to keep your cable off the floor. Like, uh, you know, just know that you're, you know, uh, don't tell me that you're going to have a vast improvement in audio quality because you spent, you know, $700 on fancy Japanese popsicle stick stands to keep your cables off the floor. I'm actually only exaggerating slightly on that. But what you were saying about our experiences in certain demonstrations at trade shows is that yeah. a person will come out and literally sell it, sell it hard. Yeah. And he had a good statement about that. Mr. Delicella did just regarding how that influences you. Reconditioning you to hear something. Yeah. Because our, our minds are incredibly, we are incredibly... It's easy to influence us. That's all I'm going to say. You get the Jedi mind trick on you when you're standing there yeah. looking at the wall of speakers or can't you hear it? Can't you hear? Now, this is going to sound so much better than Model B That's will. incredible. It... Do you hear the bass? That's just, <laughs> oh my goodness. It's like you're sitting inside the kick drum. And one of the things that uh, so many audio scientists are doing, audio scientists are doing, is when you remove the sales job and you blind a b test on level matched items suddenly these incredible differences kind of disappear that's a good reminder actually it's like if you plan to do any kind of this testing you are best served by making it completely blind where you have no clue and it's yeah. somebody else and you're not being coached or influenced well, and you can yeah. really just do a true a b comparison that's where it's hard for these super premium products to actually stand up right. and deliver some of them do like i've heard some fifty thousand dollar speakers where i got Oh, yeah. Know, where the 50, you know, why they were $50,000. Or maybe I didn't care they were $50,000. Loudspeakers versus regular speakers. There's some $2,000 speakers where, boy, they get you like 98% of the way to that. And that's a, it's hard to justify that extra $48,000 for that last 2-3% in performance. He says pulling numbers out of his butt <laughs> like a scientist. Like a salesman in the showroom floor. Like a salesman. <laughs> this is at least Rob, 20%. Let me tell you. <laughs> Well, I mean, and we also laugh because there's so much, ears are challenging, 
rooms are challenging. We'll just, we'll, I'll, I'll stop there for the moment because I want to give a shout out to uh, Brent Butterworth. He did a really great article uh, on soundstagesolo.com. Does it make sense to demo audio over the internet? And he was focusing mostly on Crutchfield's speaker compare, but he was also talking about the idea of hearing speakers via YouTube. And this was interesting to me because I had a conversation uh, with a couple friends of mine recently and they were frustrated because somebody had told them that, that they had heard a particular product on a YouTube video and it just wasn't going to do it. And they were just like, how can you hear? And he's like, well, you know, they had a very fancy mic in the room and they have a half million dollar, you know, and yeah, and but... uh, I mean, <laughs> but so the first time somebody told me they demoed some speakers from a YouTube video, I laughed like really hard and they got really offended because the person doing this video, it was beautiful. I, I, I saw the video. I got it. It was a beautiful video. They had a fancy mic. And I was like, no, because whatever they recorded, however good it is in that room at that location with those speakers and that test track, which you probably never heard before, it still gets shoved through YouTube and compressed. Brent does some really nice work explaining uh, why speaker plus room plus mic plus YouTube compression and then out through your DAC and, you know, your headphone amp and your headphones is not the same as being there with the speakers in reality. And he, one of the things he does is he looks at a, a set of testing mics that are very commonly used by a lot of people. Testing mics for headphones, the cheapest I can find a testing mic. Now, this doesn't actually include the other measurement tools, but the actual thing you, 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 you stuff the earbud into or you put the headphone over, a single-sided version of it. The entry level I can find, because there is no used market for this stuff, is about $4,500, right? And for a stereo head, uh, it starts at about $4,500 and rapidly goes up to, you know, forty grand, give or take. Things are more affordable on the speaker side of things because you can use a microphone. But the problem is, is you are not just using your microphone, you are not just measuring the speaker, you are also measuring the room the speaker is in. And that's a big deal. In any case, the website is soundstagesolo.com. A bunch of Brett's recent work has gone up there. I highly recommend it if you like uh, reading about audio stuff on the internet. Soundstagesolo.com. Does it make sense to demo audio over the internet? He's got a bunch of his uh, writing up there. It's a good read. So I just want to give a shout out to that one. Excellent. Because he points out that Crutchfield spent a lot of money because not only they recorded these speaker demos, but they also created some tools to compensate for the sound of your headphones, for the frequency response curve of your headphones. It's a great theory. And if they could spend staggering amounts of money and it doesn't particularly work, imagine how messy it is when you get a whole bunch of other... Uh, it's an interesting theory. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, it doesn't work. Um I agree. It doesn't. It really doesn't. Uh, <laughs> it just doesn't. In any case, we got to bounce. We're going to be back next week with a whole bunch more stuff. Yeah, baby. I'm busting out my ATSC 3.0 tuner today. This is exciting. I needed a Wi-Fi with uh, Ethernet adapter, and I realized mm -hmm. I had one. So I finally dug that up, and I'm getting that set up today with a separate antenna. I will remind everyone that ATSC 3 rollouts continue, and... It, since we last talked about it, they have updated the ATSC website with new deployments in various cities throughout the United States, bringing that new digital standard, which should be even easier to receive on the hardware, also providing 4K HDR in addition to improved sound quality as well through more format support. And that's all coming, and it's coming sooner than later, but it's it's still... For a lot of people, you still don't even have access to it. And your regular over-the-air tuner is going to be just fine for 
at least through the rest of this year, in most cases, you're not going to be requiring that ATSC three tuner. But I'm just like, hey, I've had that thing in hand long enough. There is probably a test signal here in the Bay Area. If there's not, I'll let you know. <laughs> there may not be a signal yet here in the Bay Area, but I will find Copy that out that. today. <laughs> That's my with thing. that, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yes. Do us a favor if you got a question, email ask at avxl.com or you can tweet at Robert Heron at Patrick Norton or at avxl on the Twitter machine. And uh, if you want to use a hashtag, pound ask avxl definitely works for us. Thank you for listening. Thank you to everyone on patreon.com slash avxl for contributing to the show. We really appreciate it. We'd love to have more of you there. And with that, I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. We'll catch you next week on AVXL.